All right, ladies and gentlemen, you sexy beast, take your seats. We are at it again. It is a Friday class. The weekend is here. Well, it'll be Wednesday for you guys, but Friday That's for true. us. Two more days till the two more days yep. till Friday. Yep. There we go. With me, as always, is the gentle giant himself, the Sultan of the studio. He's a man of many talents and as many vices. Just as many talents as vices. Mm-hmm. That's AG over there. I'm Professor CK, and we're hitting you with another episode. Yeah, uh, thank you for the the wonderful introduction. Um, thank we you are Max, doing an, for that marvelous introduction. <laughs> we're doing a, a topic that just it, it warms my heart and saddens my heart all at the same time. Can I, like can I ask you something? Huh? Do you think we're ever going to run out of? Um, I was about to say government conspiracies. Do you think we're ever going to run out of government scandals to talk about? No, and this is just modern day shit. I mean, this is, we're doing Iran-Contra today. Uh, something that I feel like has slipped, for as recent as it was, has slipped way under the radar for mm-hmm. everything else that's gone on. But What I love about important. this is it started out as Iran. Then they thought something was going on with Contra. Then at the very end, when it gets found out, they're like, it's Iran-Contra. You motherfuckers were doing this together at the same time. Yeah, just incredible. So, yeah, get ready, get excited. Um, a lot of passion went into this one, a lot of uh, care and love. So uh, get your earphones ready or get your speakers ready and let's get it on. So, Iran-Contra, um, okay, whenever I heard about Iran-Contra, like, growing up, I, I, I know where, you know, and how do you pronounce it? Do you pronounce it Iran, Iran, uh, Iran, I, Iran? I think Iran works. Iran. I, I don't know. It's weird dialect. because it's Iranian or it is Iranian. I think Depends just, on if you're them or not. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I hope it's not one of those situations like uh, Kiev is what Russia calls it and Kiev is what it's actually called or however that works. Oh. You don't want to. It looks like Kiev, if I'm yeah. being honest with you. But yeah, I'm going to go with what the Ukrainians call it. Um, okay, so the biggest thing for me on this. Oh, oh, new chair alert in the studio, by the way, so I'm <laughs> testing it out. Oh, I feel like it's really going to up up my informational value. Got to. So... Oh, I want to provide some backstory and some context just so when we talk about these different groups, we don't have to then stop, explain who they are, and then go into that. So there's like th- three simultaneous things happening. So there's things happening in the United States, most mostly in D.C. Then there's stuff happening down in uh, Nicaragua with two kind of factions, uh, political factions between the Contras and the Sandinistas. And then before that, I'm trying to remember the president before the Sandinistas took over. Um, technically, it wasn't a president. It was a family dictatorship that was... That's what I'm saying. But it was under the... It was, like, supposed to look like some type of, like, presidency or something like that, right? Yeah, they were very kind to America. It's odd because they were technically a dictatorship, but somehow that was a better deal than um, what the Sandinistas were giving. And I think it just along trade routes or along trade and different things like that. I, to me, it's really, really odd because Nicaragua as a whole isn't exactly like a 
major export player on the scene. No like they, for... they do things, but they don't do like a lot of beneficial things mm-hmm. for America. So uh, this strictly what happened down in Nicaragua with the Contras and the Sandinistas was just more of a fear of communism because the Sandinistas were backed by the Cubans. Um, the Contras were, again, uh, kind of in with the previous regime. And it was just more of the fact that the Cubans and communism and Russia kind of from afar were the Sandinista supporters, which uh, time and time again, I don't know how many times we've talked about it, but... It was the Somoza. Somozas. Okay, so it was the Somoza family. So where we're going to be going off from is we're not going to give you the entire history. Geographically, if you're not familiar with um, Nicaragua, so it is basically above Costa Rica in Central America. And then below Costa Rica is Panama, right? Which is... Pretty big for what we talked about before. Yes. Uh, Mr. Manuel Noriega, yep. old pineapple face. So um, it's still during it's still positioned, completely touching both the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean and then the Pacific Ocean. So all, it takes up the entire kind of like route up going through into Central America. Mm-hmm. So Nicaragua, um, it was ruled by essentially like Adam was saying, it was kind of a, a dictator dynasty type thing, the Somoza family. And during the revolution in Nicaragua, so the Somosas, the the U.S. liked them because they weren't – basically, if you are not a communist, <laughs> the U.S. just goes on your side during this yep. entire period of time. <laughs> like, it's just like, do you like communism? And it's like, we just like to murder people. And they're like, okay, but you don't like communism. They're like, no, we hate communism. They're like, fantastic. Do you Where murder people send for checks? a free society? Yes. yes? Okay. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me get that, actually. <laughs> yeah. So – <laughs> you have the samosas and eventually after all of the corrupt shit that they do and this is like literally a dictatorship in the sense of like making people disappear that speak out against them it's it's definitely full on north north korea ish kind of that kind of shit like they control the media all that without a better way to put it it is like typical cyclical south american leadership like <laughs> south america is as we've talked about many times before, like it's just kind of up for grabs all the time. It yeah, feels it's changing like. hands like fucking crazy, man. Yeah. So, Samosas, they get um, overthrown and they escape the country. Don't they escape to the U.S.? They fled to, I don't think it was the U.S., I think it might have been Brazil. Mm. They went south to north. Could have Good been. Move. So, they're overthrown by the Sandinistas. And the Sandinistas are essentially an opposing political party slash rebel group or whatever you want to call them, revolutionary group. And they are more on the socialist side. Mm-hmm. And I, the narrative pushed about them was their, their red communism. That's, that's exactly that's what they're going to be. That's when you hear certain narratives. If you just go for a completely bias, it's just, they tend to skew more toward the, the socialist side and everything. Well, socialism being a word that basically means communism to a lot of people in this world, <laughs> America looked at that and was this – were the Sandinistas in power at the end of Carter's administration or did they get into power – I want to say they were in power during the end of Carter's and then uh, Reagan. It was the 80s, so yeah. it was a little bit prior to Reagan. But Reagan, he, he was not a fan of the Sandinistas. He he was such a fan of the Contras, which this uh, – what I'm about to say is going to sound nuts – but it's even going to sound even more troubling when we start to talk about what the Contras did. But uh, he's basically equivalized, made the equivalent of saying that the Contras were like the founding fathers of South America. Yes, that they were fighting for their independence from tyranny and all this shit. Well, what he <laughs> failed to mention is that the founding fathers 
unlike the Contras, uh, didn't murder people, uh, um, some massacres. Yeah, I mean, we probably did some bad stuff to the hold natives. On. Okay, hold on a second. Not to the degree that the Contras did. No, 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 no. no. Um, but they, I mean, they were also, the Contras also made their money, some of their money by running drugs, drug smuggling. They were in Nicaragua, so it was that pipeline from mm-hmm. South America up to Central America and the United States. And I have absolutely no problem <clears throat> with their drug running things. I do have problems with kind of after this all came to light and they really took a look at the Contras. Are you talking about the fact that Nancy and Ronald had the entire just say no war on <laughs> drug shit and he's supporting a group? That he is fully aware is gaining some of their financial support by selling or running drugs at the very least. Yeah. Into, into the United into States. Into our country, yeah. We'll, we'll get to Freeway Rick. But uh, after this whole thing kind of gets settled out, it turns out that the Human Rights Board, like the people that look at the entire world, mm-hmm. found so many violations oh, yeah. of them either killing um, just regular free people that were on the street, civilians. Uh, they were rounding them up and burning down their villages while they were still like tied together in the yeah. village square. Just some real bad shit. So at the point in our story where we're going to pivot over to either the U.S. or Iran, where we're at in Nicaragua is the Sandinistas have taken over from the Samosas. The remnants of like the Samosa loyalists basically try to kind of like form their own revolution and they call themselves the Contras because they're the counter revolutionaries, right? Uh, I think that's what it could be. Yeah, I, that's I think because counter the C O N T and then the tri, I think it was supposed to be count counter terrorist revolutionary, something, some shit like that. Yeah, it's, it's actually a faction in wrestling in a lower division right Is now. It? Yep. Yeah, the, the Contras. More you know, the more you know. <laughs> so as we leave Nicaragua at this point, the Sandinistas are in control of the government and the country. The Contras essentially are a revolutionary or rebellious faction that's basically launching kind of a guerrilla campaign warfare from like the jungles. And they're actually even split up into separate factions as well, both calling themselves the Contras, but having a little bit of like difference in their philosophy i think uh, it mostly backed out of nicaragua as a whole their station kind of in the countries around right on the borders to be able to get in they are still in the jungles of nicaragua but as far as everywhere else around it and we will maybe we don't even need to really briefly talk about it but old pineapple face noriega uh, being the man that he was and being the cia informant that he was actually volunteered the them to- asset <laughs> asset yeah sorry uh he volunteered to bring in the Contras down into Panama and actually train them and help stage them to send them back into Because we still Nicaragua. had a presence down there in Panama, right? But we did, but Noriega yeah. was more of a... No, no, he would train them, but you don't, you don't think that he would have... Because he went and trained with the CIA, yeah. so he would just be, in essence, training them in CIA tactics. Still a CIA training base mm-hmm. facility down there. Okay, let's I, pivot. Oh. Before we get there... Um, before anything really happens, and we'll talk about them here in a little bit, but the Boland Amendments. The Boland Amendments were Congress's way of stopping Reagan from being able to fund this Sandinista revolution, or not Sandinista, the Contra Revolution. Mm-hmm. And it, they were actively sending money down there. Okay, so why is Reagan after the Contra, or why is Reagan after the Sandinistas? Why doesn't he like them? Communism. He, he, they're Cuban. We're still nuts deep. Shockingly, still nuts deep in the Cold War at this point. It's so crazy because it was so cooled off by then. There wasn't uh-huh. a lot of activity. They said by that point in the Cold War, it was at that point the Cold Proxy War. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what we were basically doing, we knew that we could not fight Russia. Russia could not fight us because it would cause nuclear war. You can't fight directly like that. 
So basically what we're trying to do is America and Russia are going into these underdeveloped nations that have power vacuums or can be easily swayed one or the other. And basically it's like trying to play, like pick your players. Like I want him, I want him. So you would go in and you would either, we're going to try to turn it red or we're going to try to turn it blue. So you would come in and have basically these United States backed factions, these Russian backed factions fighting for control within some of these countries. Just a full blown proxy war. So the the whole thing with Reagan is because the Sandinistas and I'm 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 talking about this completely impartial until we get to the shit on our side because yeah. we do nasty shit and it needs to be called out. And it doesn't this didn't even get enough attention when it actually fucking happened. So because the Cubans are um, backing or at least supporting in some way, shape, or form. I think they might have been letting them train there, something like that. Uh, probably weapons as well. Mm-hmm. But since they're backing the Sandinistas, all you have to do is say, Russia backs Cuba, Cuba backs the Sandinistas, ergo communism. And so the whole point was that Reagan's scare tactics and fear-mongering were telling the American people we cannot allow communism to basically set up shop in our basement. Because if that happens, the next thing that happens is Mexico is going to become communist, and then it's going to be spilling over our borders. It's like communism is not... I'm not a communist. No. But, I'm, but what I understand is that if we have a, such a sound system, and I text you this yeah. the other day, if we have such Good a point. sound system and capitalism is truly the best system, as it's always declared to be, then it would just snuff out any communism, or you might have small pockets of communism within the country. I think there's still services that are like that now. Adam, uh, what are some socialist services for me? Uh, school, roads, uh, literally any sort of city works, Police, anything like that. fire, yeah. all that good stuff that we fucking like. Yeah, so. and uh, the crazy thing about it is just, I don't know if the word ambivalent really comes into play with what I'm about to say, but I just don't really, I mean, communism and capitalism face to face, our capitalism is really driven off of a communist society in China. Mm-hmm. Like that's where a most of our of capital goods have to come from. You, and you told me this too, and it makes perfect sense. If both systems work how they were intended for the people to work, not by the people that can take the greatest advantage of them mm-hmm. or make the greatest gains from them. But if they worked in a perfect way, both capitalism and communism would be extremely effective ways to live a society. Because you have communism, which would spread out wealth to everybody. I understand the whole gripe about it is like people work harder, so they should make more. That can still happen. What yeah. I'm saying, though, communism, the reason it gets... We still have oligarchs rap- in Russia. Exactly. The reason why communism gets a bad rap is because the government in Russia is who runs the thing. So if communism was not essentially relied upon or completely fucking hijacked by the government and it just operated, you would have essentially a society with free health care and everybody would be, you know, healthier. Everybody would have a roof over their heads. All their, not luxuries, but their um, essentials to live life would be taken care of. We still do that in in certain ways with food stamps and welfare programs and all that. And so there are going to be people that take advantage of them always. Exactly. Who doesn't take advantage of literally So neither everything. work perfectly. If they both did, we wouldn't even be happy. It would be a hybrid communistic capitalism or some shit like that. Anyway, so Reagan is fear-mongering. We can't let them set up shop. That's why we need Congress to keep sending money to the Contra so we can make sure communism doesn't invade our borders. Well, and, uh, we don't even really talk about Cuba in a way that really like shines a light on Cuba. But the Sandinistas did two things that Cuba did that 
were actually very, very good. I mean, they put in something called the Nicaraguan Literacy Campaign, and they estimated that um, 75 to 90% of, like, the people outside of the bigger cities in Nicaragua... Rural. Uh, rural, rural, yeah. Were all... They couldn't read. They were all illiterate. Uh, same thing as France. Yeah. Napoleon episode. And 50% of the entire country was illiterate. By the time they were done over, I think it was like a span of like three years, only 10% of the country was still Seriously? illiterate. Yeah. So, we need that here. <laughs> no shit, huh? And not only that, but they set up actual, like, legitimate universal health care to where the system used to be kind of, there were so many layers to it, much like our health care mm-hmm. system. To Different where, providers, uh, all this kind of stuff. Exactly. You can't use this person, you have to use this person. But they nationalized it, and the health care down there, even to this day, Nicaragua was sort of fallen off. Sort of because of the Sandinistas, like the the leadership that they put in. I'm sure our influence had nothing to do with that. No, no, but they still have a fairly effective healthcare system. So if we're talking about the badness of what they were doing down there, I'm sure everything wasn't rainbows and butterflies, but a lot of people could read and a lot of people were getting It was blown way out of proportion, it sounds like. So at that point... Reagan is petitioning for Congress to continue funding the Contras because, again, communism is bad. And at some point, Congress passes an act. Um, I can't remember the guy's first name, but you mentioned it before, the Boland Amendment. Our first one was 82, and the second one, because they were still skirting around the first mm-hmm. one, came in 83. So 82, Senator Boland um, submits an amendment to the floor that says the United States um, and any of its agencies are not to provide any funding, taxpayer funding to, or taxpayer paid funding to the Contras. And that was supposed to take it out. They thought that they had added enough stuff in there. And again, that's not as simple as the amendment was, but that's the gist of it. Well, looking over it, Reagan is like, um, I mean, we really still need to be funding. Hold on. I'm going to try to do my Reagan voice. Well, um, you know, we still need to be funding these guys. Uh, communism's bad. It's pretty good, was it? Not bad. Okay. I watched a lot. I've been watching a lot of fucking Reagan Reagan speeches. <laughs> he sounds like a Simpsons character. <laughs> he really does, man. So, funding is unable to go through any government agencies: CIA, FBI, Department of whatever. And what's our next step after that? Uh, we have allies on the outside of our country, which I don't know how this ever happened, and I guess I don't know how it still happens today. But the point man running down there was a guy named Oliver North. Now, he was an NSA advisor. Well, so I, I, before we get, I want to get to Iran first and explain what's going on. Well, there. Oliver actually does something here. Oh, that's him. right. That's where he gets his practice. Yeah. yeah that's so point. Oliver is told from the. God damn it, use his rank. <sighs> it's not lieutenant. It's Lieutenant Colonel Oliver. Did you hear him say that during a Senate hearing? Yeah. The odd thing about all this is, is everybody that we're going to be talking about all saw Vietnam action. Mm -hmm. So, Which was not that long ago before this. It was 10 years. Yeah. So we're talking about these guys that were actually over in the shit that we're fighting. This is also 10 years, when all this comes to light, 10 years after Watergate too. (sighs) So So there's a lot of war and scandal hangover. Yeah, but all these major officials all saw what fighting an endless war with really no winnable outcome yeah, was. Yeah, at what point are we going to stop just sending money? When when does it become a thing where we're like, shit, now we got to send people over? That was the first war that we lost. And so, like, that's leaving a horrible taste. Oh, yeah. And Nicaragua had to look very similar 
in kind of situation terrain and all that as, as Vietnam, I would imagine. Very jungleous. Yeah. Jungleous. So, like jungleous. Uh, Jungle-ish. So Ollie goes ahead and gets um, word from his higher ups. They tell him, hey, man, uh, we still need to continue funding the Contras. So you're going to need to get in touch with your guys on the ground in Nicaragua. And we're going to have to have them set up a Swiss bank account. So what account. was his position? What was Oliver North's position? Why was he able to do all this? He was an NSA advisor. N- yes, he was an advisor, National Security, Security. Council. Okay. Yeah. Wait, there's NSC. another. Oh, it's it's. I think it's National Security Advisory. National Security Council. Because it's not. NSC. Yeah, because what you said, what did you say? NSA. That's National Security else. Agency. That's, yeah. So I'm just going to call it the National Security Council or whatever it was. It's three guys. And then underneath them are basically what they are, the, um, what's the, I, A pyramid scheme? No. What's the <laughs> name of it? I just fucking spaced the name of it. NSC. National the National Security, Security Council. Council. I'm just going to say the council. Yeah. The council's job is basically the foreign intelligence gathering arm for the White House. So their job is to appraise the president on the goings-on in the world and give him updates and all that kind of stuff. All of these guys that are in this, one of them is the attorney general, I think, at the time, and then a couple other, like, um, admirals, colonels, former military guys, I think, were also there as well. Yeah, Robert McFarlane, we're going to talk about a lot. He was an assistant, I think, He was the national security advisor to the president. So Casper Weinberger, secretary of state, his name's going to come up. There you go. John Poindexter was the man that ends up replacing McFarlane. We'll talk about him. Oliver North was basically, like, the point man and the fall guy for all of this. He was right underneath those three guys. He was one of the guys right underneath them. And so these, all three of these guys also have basically teams that are doing all this research to get them information. So North is right underneath them and operates out of this office called three night. Is it three number three ninety two? I I don't remember. Did you see pictures of it? Uh uh-uh. Okay, so his office was basically set up like a nerve center, and he had three computers, like the big ass ones, sitting in front of him, and they would constantly be coming in with different reports from different parts of the world. So it was like a live feed. And at that time during like the early 80s, man, like that was top, that was like top technology shit. Nobody had two screens in the 80s. He had three, man. I'm shocked by two screens now. And he had this apparently like a light up on the wall that when like certain alerts were coming in would flash red to get his attention. So he's basically just in this nerve center and is gathering information from every possible source around the world. So he's like their, their main guy. And like you said, they give him the job and basically say... We need to find out a way to keep funding the Contras. And so he's kind of trying to figure this out. In the meantime, when the Bolinac passed, do you know about the public funding, the campaign? Mm-mm. So Reagan was able to drum up private citizen support. I oh, think yeah. up to the amount of, I want to say somewhere between six to $10 million. So between the time of the Boland amendment that cut off the funding for the government, he was basically running bringing, or I'm sorry, raising private funds to fund the Contra rebels. Basically people that were so anti-communist in the United States that would donate, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, which there are definitely those people that make so much money off capitalism. Of course, they're going to pay that. It's nothing to them. Oh, and it's just one of those things where it's going to come back to them at some point. Like it's not a uh, in the way that our government works, there's so much back scratching with rich donors that happens where you'll see something like a, a tax cut for the wealthy or mm-hmm. something like that, where that money comes back tenfold. And so outside of just what they were raising, um, Ollie tells them that they need to set up this Swiss bank account. I don't know if it was Swiss or Cayman Islands. It was Swiss. Cayman, okay, it was Swiss. Swiss. Um, 
they secured funding from Saudi Arabia, which yeah. seems so odd that we just cannot shake Saudi Arabia. After they sent those fellas to uh, the Taliban to train to blow up our buildings and shit like that, mm-hmm. we're still cool with them. After Khashoggi, somehow we're still cool with them. Um, but they pledged to donate $1 million a month to the Contra unit and ended up doubling up, I think, like halfway through that first year to where they could do $2 million. So they gave about $18 million just straight from Saudi Arabia to the Contras. But then again, $18 million to fight a war to try to take over a country, that shit's going to get moved pretty fast. Especially when you can then reap some benefits in trade deals and stuff like that with that country because they still do have exports. Not a lot, though. That's the thing. Is it's- You're going to make your money back eventually, man. You, you have a place to send people for training or, you know, I don't know. Or if you say, hey, America, we helped you with that. We need some of your missiles. Yeah. What was the, do you got the name of the guy that was like the former Navy or Air Force dude that ended up becoming kind of the point of contact down there? Oh. The North put into power or um, North put into that position? Shit. It was start with an S. Seagram? Could have been. The guy that was, he was former Air Force and then became a, a weapons dealer. Yes. What was his name? If you're still listening to this, it's because I haven't taken this part out, but most likely I'm going to edit this out while we're looking. So we sound good. So we sound like we know what we're fucking talking about. But yeah, he comes in a little bit later. He comes in. Well, hold on. Let me get his name and then that's where I'm going to start. Okay. It. God damn it, man. Oh, Seabert? Seabert. It was something like that. Hang on. Because William Casey was the head of the FBI at the... Oh, Richard Secord. Okay. Secord, yes. All right. We found that so fast it just came to us. It was Richard Secord. We totally didn't take time to search that and Mm -mm. just edit that part out. Um, So Richard Secord was basically... He was a former... he, He served in the military. I can't remember which branch. He retired as like a colonel or something. He was basically forced to retire due to some shady shit. And <clears throat> he kind of served as Norse man on the ground down there that started basically running the whole operation of getting the funding, purchasing the weapons. Oh, that's why he got forced out, because he was doing some gun running or something like that with some Canadian smugglers or something. While shit. he was still in While the While he was still active in the military. Yeah. And then he wasn't kicked out. They were like, hey, man, you got to retire. And he's like, really? And they're like, or we got to fire you. He's like, I'll retire and keep all my benefits and shit. Yeah. So he's then put in charge down in Nicaragua to um, basically get the money, gather the weapons, and just make sure these guys, logistically, he was the logistics guy. He was the guy that was making sure they had the support. Are we now ready to go to Iran? Um. Yeah, I, I think we're there. There okay. were some other donors that were contributing, but... They needed <coughs> large amounts of cash cash fast. They couldn't keep just getting donors would keep private citizens would keep doing it, but they needed more money. It was kind of a you know I don't know if the Contras were making much headway at this point. They were trying to get the Sandinistas out there as quickly as possible. More money probably meant more weapons and stuff, and could wrap the whole thing up. Now we're going over to Iran, Iran. Let's go back to the Carter administration just to set up a little bit of what happened leading up to the Reagan administration. Okay. The guy that was in power in Iran at that time was, it was the Shah of Iran, right? I can't remember what his name is. Now, we talked about this. Ayatollah is the religious leader Uh of Iran. The Shah is the political leader. Sometimes they, and you'll eventually find when they do merge together. 
But in this situation, you had the Ayatollah Ku... Kumani. Kumani. I think his name was. And then you had the Shah of Iran. I'm sorry, I can't remember what the Shah's name was. So the Shah was not popular. Soleimani, maybe. Soleimani. Soleimani? I think that was the Shah. Okay. So there is um, an uprising in Iran, kind of like there was in Nicaragua. Except for this time, it was us. Yes. And through some maneuverings, the... No, because the Shah was friendly for us. Uh, the Shah came into power through the means of the U.S. government. Oh, I thought you place. meant the rebellion that no. overthrew the Shah. Okay, gotcha. So yes, the Shah was very friendly for us. We probably had some pretty, pretty sick oil deals over there. He ends up getting deposed and fleeing to the United States. And he is then, there's like a period where there's like a power vacuum, but the guy that was basically the figurehead of the revolution was the Ayatollah Kumani. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. That's just how I'm going to pronounce it. Or just if it's the wrong name. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it is. It's it's Kumani. Okay. Um, so he is, again, the Ayatollah, the religious leader. He then moves into essentially both the religious leader and the political leader. And at that point, the United States and him, it's him and the Shah had pretty much a different, completely opposite political ideology. And so it goes to a point where it's much more kind of open and free willing. They said like in the 60s and 70s, Iran and Tehran looked like like London it and stuff. It was just beautiful. bustling with like... Colors everywhere. Yeah, colors everywhere and women like all these businesses. Pants. Women were able to wear whatever they wanted and it was like fashion and all that shit. As soon as the Ayatollah gets in there, basically it goes back to like what you actually kind of stereotypically think of when you think of Iran, the very like Burkas. women in like... Are they hijabs? Yeah, uh, hijabs. I hijabs. Think. Um, women completely covered, more of just a traditional, like not as flashy or anything like that. And I mean, people were happy going back like that. I don't know if they thought the like the Western culture was corrupting kind of their their history or anything like that, but there seemed to have been kind of a They're believing what their leaders are telling them. That the yeah, West exactly. I mean the, all these the flow things. of the information <coughs> is coming from there. They're only finding out what they want them to know, especially in countries like that where like communication is not super widely available to everyone. Yeah. Our allies had some pretty big beef with them too, because when the Ayatollah became over and uh, or took over, the British Petroleum Company (BP) had control of a lot of the oil that was coming out of Iran. They were kind of like the major oil Does exporter. Does that go back to like when they have possession of shit during like World War One and World War Two? Could have been. Where Could they have, still yeah, had they might have gone into there and started taking a lot of that over. Um, and the new Shah starts really thinking about it and he's like, well, why are we allowing you guys to make so <coughs> much money when this is our oil mm-hmm. on our land? So he starts grabbing back these oil facilities. The, the Shah did. Or, yeah. yeah the, okay. the Shah basically nationalized the oil company that was, or the oil that was coming out of To Iran. bring that money back to where it was yeah. coming from. Yeah. Makes right, perfect sense. Totally makes sense. So at this point, um, Kumani is in power and... When he gets into power, the Jimmy Carter allows the Shah to basically seek refuge in the United States. Now, this does not make the people of Iran very happy. So what they do one day is they basically storm the American embassy, and they end up taking... How many hostages did they like take? 21. Oh, more than that, dude. I, Americans weren't the only hostages that No, they, they weren't. I think all in total, out of all the thievery, it was like 140 or something. 
It was a lot of hostages. This is like the first... 50, 52 American diplomats and citizens were held hostage after um, it was a militarized Iranian college students um, basically stormed the U.S. embassy. So 52 Americans are taken hostage at this point. And just speeding ahead, because we're not talking about the Iranian hostage crisis, we're talking about Iran-Contra. It'll be a different episode. Jimmy Carter does whatever he can. I like Jimmy Carter, Peanut. Um, He does whatever he can during this entire time to try to get these hostages freed. All this stuff goes down, and what ends up happening with these hostages is literally a day after Reagan comes into office after winning the election, the hostages are released. And there is a little bit of conspiracy towards the Reagan administration. Like, were they working behind the scenes to be, you know, because if Jimmy Carter would have got them and they would have been released even before the election, his approval rating would have gone through the roof. He wouldn't have been a one-term president, probably. But to to sit here and say that, like, there's those, that side thinking, like, well, they were scared of Reagan. They knew that Reagan was going to put up with that shit. So they got him out and released the hostages. No. No, not when Jimmy Carter had been working literally, like, and they were held captive for, was it? More than a year? It was a while. Yeah. So Jimmy Carter put in all this legwork. I think what ended up happening is that it's possible that the Reagan administration or whatever their committee was to elect him basically was perhaps in contact with someone in Iran and made a deal. We're going to find that deals are going to be made. So it's not crazy to think that yeah. one wasn't made prior to that's like, hold hold these guys until I get into office. This will help me get in one there. Day, and then once literally I get just in, one day longer. Yep. And once I get in there, I'll hook you guys up with some sweet shit that I'm not supposed to be doing. So those hostages get released. I'm just talking about the reason I'm talking about that is because it kind of sets the stage. So we're going back to Iran and Reagan is now in office. Iran and Iraq start fucking having a, having a little tussle with each other. And Iraq is basically backed by the Soviet Union, has all these tanks and everything. This is when Saddam Hussein, basically he'd been in power for a little bit, but then he became president in name. This is like his coming out party. Exactly. So he's like, well, if shit's kind of going in flux over in Iran, I'm just going to go over there and try to do what I want to do over there. So the Iranians, because they don't have any backing at this point, they're fighting a losing battle because Iraq is so much more advanced than them from a military standpoint. They have tanks and all that shit. Well, in order to kind of level the playing field, when, when did the hostages get taken in Lebanon? 1983. Okay. So that's what kind of kicks this whole thing off. Well, prior to, and before that, uh, 1983, before the uh, citizens were taken hostage, the U.S. launched something called Operation Staunch. Oh, that's right. And Operation Staunch was basically to try to persuade all the countries that would sell weapons to Iran not to. Because they're trying to get the Ayatollah out of power. Yeah. It's the same thing they're trying to do with Sandinistas. They're basically trying to, and except in this situation, it's basically like a They installed their guy and they don't want him out. So they're forcing, they're basically telling all these other countries, do not deal anything, any weapons to Iran. And the United States is the one that comes up with that to go tell everyone. It's so ironic. So about seven uh, U.S. citizens get taken hostage at different points, like over the course of a few months in Lebanon. And Lebanon is right below, geographically, it's right below and it borders um, Iran. Lebanon is in full civil war as well. Um, Beirut's the capital. If you guys have ever heard of Beirut, it's in Lebanon. We have... um, 
forces over in Lebanon, supposedly, to try to keep the peace. Don't really know what that was, but we actually had a, a group of our military in Lebanon at the time. Um, there was an attack that happened. Turns out that the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah was the one that did it, and it turns out that... And that's Hez- where they operated. They were operating in Lebanon. Yeah, okay. but they were still backed by Iran. Okay. Or Iran. All right. So... Um, they start taking hostages, yeah. American hostages, and they take seven in total. I know, I, I can't remember what all the other ones did, but two of them that stand out, one of them was a priest. Uh, last name was Weir, I think. And then another one, I can't remember his last name, was actually someone that was seized from like, uh, he worked for the CIA. And he was over there and it was like the head of the CIA station or something like that. So big he had information. Huh? Big ticket item. He yes. was a big git. So... They need to – basically their priority, I really think, is to get this CIA guy back because he's the first one they ask for when they're able to ask for something because they're afraid that he's going to share – under torture, he's going to share some classified shit. So who who sets up this little arrangement? I'm trying to recall. Um, it was some guy that was working in tandem with um, Robert uh, McFarlane. Okay. And Robert McFarlane – He's a he's a big player in this. Basically, he's the national security advisor to the president. Yes. So him and Reagan are like thick as thieves. And um, Reagan, we we talked about this. Um, He seemed like he was always looking for his car. Anytime you look, he's kind of looking around and he's not really sure what's going on. And Robert McFarlane was someone who. uh, Again, people are people. They're flawed individuals. Some people do things with the best intentions. I'm not using it as an excuse. But I think that out of this whole thing, Robert McFarlane actually had the most contrition and kind of realized how far he had strayed from what he wanted to do. Yeah. And I'm not using that as an excuse. He tried to knock himself off when he realized that the shit exactly. had So he, he carried a lot of guilt with this. So one thing, too, is during this time, I can't remember who he said it to, but Reagan had told either North or McFarlane, he's like, keep the Contras whole body and soul. And at that point, the whole thing is throughout this entire thing, Reagan says he doesn't know anything about Iran-Contra or anything like that, what happened. He think he ends up coming out admitting that he was aware of a couple weapon shipments to Iran, but that he didn't know what they were for. And so kind of getting back to, to what's going on in Iran, somehow we get in contact with people within the Ayatollah's like party that are a little bit more moderate that apparently the administration, the Reagan administration think that they can try to make a deal with. And so McFarlane, Oliver North, and I'm trying to think some other advisors get fake Irish passports and fly in like an unmarked plane to basically meet with these guys to negotiate, to find out what can be done for these hostages. And in meeting with them, they meet with what's the weapons dealer's name that you like so much? I, my favorite guy in this whole entire thing, his name is Manager Gabonifar. Gabonifar, that's right. So he's Gabonifar is a wild dude. So he's basically he's playing every side. He's literally a gun for hire, but he's a weapons dealer. So he's a weapons dealer for hire. Yeah, he's an Iranian expat that is, I believe, like stationed or living in uh, Israel at the time. Um, if you've ever seen a show on FX called Snowfall, um, it's phenomenal. I would recommend every episode, every season. It's just a, it tells kind of this whole story from a guy that we're going to talk about a little bit later. His name's Freeway Rick Ross. Um, he 
for all intents and purposes, uh, supplied the cocaine into South Central LA and all over the country. So he was crack epidemic. Yeah, he he. What he does is he's just an interesting character that plays in this. But there is a guy in the show um, who is actually they they confuse some things, but um, Freeway Rick's character is buying cocaine from this guy who's supposed to be Gabonifar and he's just the craziest dude that you've ever seen. There's people getting shot at his house all the time for fun. He's always wearing like swim trunks and like an open, uh, flowered shirt with like a fat ass gold chain. Mm-hmm. And he's got gold Big watches hanging out. Yeah. He just, yeah. he's the funniest dude. And Gabonifar through all intents and purposes, like we're going to talk about, like Chris just said, he had his finger in every pot and he made money at every turn. He was it was incredible the amount of influence this guy had. And not only that, before this had all happened, like years before, through the FBI and the government, he was what was known as a burn notice. And he was basically like a do not touch, do yeah, not he, do business. He had fucking burned so many bridges and like stab people in the back. <laughs> yeah. Like we're not gonna fuck. We're we're we will do business with anyone. We won't even do business with this guy. I, and somehow he still weasels his way into this. So basically, Gabani Forrest sets up this meeting with this secret cabinet or council or whatever to meet in um, Tehran, and they're under the impression the council's under the impression from the United States that they're going to be meeting with people high up in uh, <laughs> Kamani's, like, Kamani's, like, administration or his his party. And he ends up, like, Bonnie Farr, like, they're, like, low-tier guys that he meets. Like, the U.S., the people from the U.S., um, Oliver North, brings a fucking cake. Allegedly. I, I believe the cake thing. Okay. It's, it's been corroborated by enough people, McFarlane included, because he was there, so they bring it's this just cake. so fucking dumb. <laughs> I know, but just listen. So the rationale is that part of um, it's not Muslim culture, but is it? I it might be Iranian culture that when you're trying to make amends for something for past you know indiscretions or fights, you bring some type of gift. It could be pastries or dessert or something like that. We overthrew your government. Here's a cake. Yeah, it's shaped like, that. like a key. The the cake wasn't shaped like a key. It had a gold key on the oh. top of it. And the gold key is to symbolize like unlocking the unlocking our future relationship or some shit like that. They might as well have just brought a slate and a rag and been like, hey, let's wipe the slate clean. No kidding. Well, what ends up happening is the oh, cake doesn't you even forgot make the it. Another fun part. What? Uh they brought over a Bible that oh, had a yeah. handwritten note in it by Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Like, I know you don't believe in what's yeah. in this book, but I want you to know that I'm also a man of God. Not even your God. Yeah, so not, I'm going to tell you right now, law. hey, I'm a man of a different God. Like, the, the one thing that you're against, here, here's a Bible. This is what you should be reading. Like, the, I don't know what the point of that's supposed to be. So what ends up happening with the cake? I'm not sure what happened with the Bible. What oh, ends up happening I, with the cake? Two of the guards that are, like, escorting them around end up eating, like, part of the fucking cake. So they don't even have it to, like, present to these. So the Bible ended up. They handed it over to Bonifar, and mm-hmm. Bonifar asked what it was, and they said what it was, and he just threw it to the side. Like, he didn't even open it up and read it. He's yeah. just like, what, what the fuck are you doing with this? So nothing comes of this meeting, because no one here is, like, the tastemakers to really... He makes some contacts and everything, but n- n- their intention to, like, also try to get the hostages back, nothing really happens. Basically, Bonifar tells them, though, he's like, you know, if you start giving us weapons and shit, I could probably put some pressure on some people in the government and they could probably put some pressure on Hezbollah and we could probably get some of these hostages released. Well, and that was contingent on him 
bringing Israel into this. Yes. Now, Israel plays a very weird part in this because um, Iraq, not Israel friendly. Iran, very not Israel friendly. Mm-hmm. So I got to think that maybe... They said Isra- one time when they were flying weapons in because they weren't flying them in from Israel. It was Portugal that that happened in. Where, where they the turned David the shit was back. on it. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that was in Iran where the Star David comes in and they're like... It's like loaded with weapons for them. They're like, we don't want this plane here. It's like, all your shit's on it. They're like, we don't like what's on that plane. Well, we'll get to that. That was a very... Uh, that was Gabonifar all over that. He had his hands all over that. But Gabonifar's like, hey, I have an in with Israel... Israel, I'm sure at this time, is like, maybe if Iran and Iraq are fighting each other, they'll quit fucking with us for mm-hmm. a while. So maybe let's see if we can play and, one or both I mean, sides of this. they're making money off of it. So in, in short, what it is to try to skirt, essentially, the whole embargo with not dealing weapons <laughs> to Iran, what they come up with, again, if Reagan knew or not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So North and McFarland basically come up with this plan <laughs> To send weapons or sell weapons to Israel. Israel, First, it was Israel sells weapons to Iran, and then, and then America replenishes right? all the Israeli stocks. So we were selling to Israel, and then they were selling to Iran, but everyone was making money because everyone would sell them at a markup. So like all of, and it sounds so crazy. It's like shopping at Costco when they were talking <laughs> about, because that was one thing I was thinking about, like, how are they just getting access to all these fucking weapons? Because I'm not talking about a case of guns. No. These no. are literally hundreds of like high technologically Thousands. advanced missiles, like uh, air to air, or no, or I'm sorry, surface to air tracking, you know, tomahawk missiles, tomahawks and toes and all that kind of stuff. So it's not Costco. You don't get to walk in and load up your cart and just bounce out with your club card. So North would go to the military and buy them from the military. Which apparently there was no screening. Like they were just like, okay, here's your fucking fifty missiles. What do you, you work for the for? NSA? Wait, don't worry about it. He would then take those and then sell them to Israel at a markup, and so they'd be making money there. And then I think they would then sell them to Iran and make money there as well. The American markup hadn't happened quite yet. Um, it, just to kind of set the stage on where this goes, because it goes really, really wrong before it ends up going right. Mm-hmm. And Gabonifar is the entire reason why this oh, happens. Yeah. So um, August 85 is their first shipment. Everything goes super smooth. They ordered 96, and 96 got there. Everything was First good. got to Israel. Yep. Then is we don't fly them into Iran. It's not like we're like, hey, we're going to also help this way. We're done, technically, once they get to Israel, because, hey, Israel, these are for you guys, right? And they're like, yeah, that's right. They're for us. Yep. And then they then take them and fly them into Iran or transport them, however, whatever. And the whole idea was this first one was a very small amount of missiles to see kind of how it worked. Um, the second one was supposed to be the first. Um, Iran was going to talk to Hezbollah. Hezbollah was going to release the first. No, um, they asked for all of them. They thought that. Oh, remember, yeah, they, they thought asked they for were going to get them all. Course. They thought they were going to get all seven hostages. No dice. They, uh, get, they say one. They get one. So, uh, well, and this second shipment is where everything starts to kind of change. So, but that's after they release the first prisoner. No. Oh, nope. it's not? Okay. Second shipment was the first release of the prisoner. The second shipment was supposed to be 100 missiles. And. Um, Israel ended up sending 408 to Iran and Oliver North is like, what the fuck did you guys do? You guys sent four times as many missiles as you were supposed to send to him. And Gabonifar, um, is talking to him and he goes, look, man, 
Iran's price went up. Iran asked for more, so we supplied more. You guys said 100. That was what your agreement was. Iran changed the deal. They wanted 400 now. So the first guy that they were going to release was that um, military agent that you were talking about. It's the first guy they asked for. They weren't going to release him. So basically, well, the, the first guy that they were going to release, he ended up being so sick. They said he was sick. Well, he died. I know, but what's to say that they didn't end up killing him? They did see uh, yeah. proof of life, like a photo and stuff, and he looked pretty like thin and everything. But when they asked for him, they're like, "We want this guy." They're like, "Actually, he's too sick to travel." You're like, "Well, is he? Do you have a hospital there? Is he going to get better in a bed?" Maybe you're right because this was the same people that asked for a hundred and then ended up asking yes. for four. Yes, and so they're like, "Well, fuck, who do we ask for?" Well, the second guy that had the most publicity behind him was this preacher, mm-hmm. pastor, reverend, or whatever it was. Because his wife had been on the news being like, I don't think the government's doing as much as they can. Like, she's trying to be like nice yeah. about it. She's like, I don't think they are doing as much as they can to get him released. They request for him to get released. Bingo. That guy comes back to the States. So his last name was Weir. He gets released. But they're still like, you're giving us fucking one? And we get, or we sent you four times yeah. as many missiles? Um, third shipment. This is where shit really starts to go wrong. And this is Gabonifar's just his... When he starts asking not only for, like, more, but he's like, we want the good shit. Let's start going up in tiers. We need stuff that's able to, like, destroy tanks and, like, shoot down helicopters and airplanes and this shit. It's still all tomahawks from what I read. Um, The third shipment was supposed to be 500 missiles. As the American flight is coming into... Or not as the American flight, I believe, as the Israeli flight is coming into Portugal... Portugal sees the two planes that they're on. Why would they don't have to fly over Portugal? It would uh, have to be when the Americans are okay. coming. Okay. As, as the missiles are At headed. At some point for some reason. Yeah. Or headed into Portugal. Um, they just say no. They deny the shipment. They send the planes back. The planes get diverted back. I'm sure when they land, there was a real big talk about that. So this third shipment that was supposed to be 500 Hawk missiles, only 18 missiles show up. And every one of the 18 is engraved with the Star of David on it. I have a theory about this. I don't think there was any type of shit that went down in Portugal because, first of all, I don't think that anyone from Iran or within this deal could probably, like, call someone in Portugal and be like, hey, did you guys stop our missiles? I think what ended up happening is after they got one hostage back, that north and that council, whatever was – let's think of a name for them. What were, what were they called? The, it was the Enterprise? Uh, it was something. The Enterprise works for this. Anyway. So we're going to call this group that's like running this, the Enterprise. I know that that's actually a group that was in this, and I want to say it does apply to them. Okay. So anyway, I think they were like, we got one hostage, we sent them all this shit. No, we're going to send them 18 with the Star David on it, and then we're going to see if they want to do business with us. Because if they just kept supplying it, like what's to say they would keep releasing hostages and keeping missiles? If they're like, listen, you've only got six more people, if you're really talking... Six people, and I get that they're American citizens. How many people can be killed by all the fucking missiles that you're sending? Like, the tr- you think that these aren't going to be used against other people. So you're knowingly saying that these eight, or sorry, these six other people are worth more than the hundreds, if not thousands, that are going to be killed or could be killed by these weapons. Like, I'm sorry, but that's fucking dumb. But when you hold all the chips... You get to make the rules. I understand that, man. But then I hate to say it. And like, yes, I don't think that they should have been fucking taken hostage or anything like that. But you do have to weigh the cost of human life. You can't just say an American life because you don't live somewhere is worth a hundred or a thousand other people. 
Those are people with families. Those are people, I'm going to get fucking heated on this, but you can't say that. But these people that are in charge don't give a fuck. The people that are doing this, they don't give a shit, especially over North. Cause we're going to get to like how he views himself and everything during his like deposition, uh-huh. his Senate hearing. But so anyway, yeah, they send the 18 missiles, they show up. And then I forgot what the reaction to that is. Iran went nuts. Well, of course. They were fucking pissed. And at this point, they realized, like, okay, this whole system with Israel not going so well. We probably need to just cut our losses and go a separate way. So after... One thing. The Gabani Far meeting. Mm -hmm. I forgot one big thing that they say that the, the way that it went down is a little bit different. So there was still money that had the, had to be paid to like the U.S. as part of this deal that Gabonifar was going to pay during this meeting in Tehran. Yeah. And at some point, I can't remember if it was with McFarlane or if it was with North. I know also during this, Poindexter comes in and is Poindexter part of this as well? To, he's, we're about to get to where McFarlane's like, I can't do this, okay. i got to that's, that's what I was waiting for. But I know that during this meeting, at some point, Gabonifar or North or someone comes up with the idea, they say it was Gabonifar's idea. But he was like, you know, we still have this money and everything. And some for some reason, I don't know how he knew this or how they say he knew this. But he's like, why don't I just send this to the Contras for you? Well, And North was like, holy shit. He's like, I'm running this other operation. This guy's just offering to basically solve my problem of funding with this other fucking Contra operation. You know what? Yeah, why don't you do that, Gabonifar? I'm going to go ahead and have you send that. And I think it was something like $18 million dollars. He's like, why don't you go ahead and send that to the Contras? Because this is money that the government, you know, that people are never going to know. This this whole thing people don't know about. So we're able to take this hidden money that's technically been paid for by the manufacturer and purchase of these weapons in the first place and send it to the Contras for support. So this is when the connection of the bank account that, fuck, what's the guy's name? C? Seacord. Uh, Seaboard. So this is basically also where they start funneling, I think, this money into the Swiss bank account as well. And Seaboard is able to pull this money to continue funding the Contras. And when he was funding them down there, I know we're jumping back and forth between Iran and Nicaragua. This isn't just like weapons and everything. He sets up a resupply line to where he has an entire like fleet of aircraft. And what they're doing is they're not landing at these Contra camps or like training areas. They're flying over in like repurposed like cargo planes or C-130s or whatever and they're just kicking all these supplies out over the camps and parachute dropping them. And they're doing these flights constantly. So there are also other people involved here working on these planes and transporting these weapons. But sorry, getting back to, to Iran. Yeah, just kind of to lead into that and after all this has gone wrong, uh, to expound kind of on what you were talking about in the beginning. So Gabonifar has made money on every single one of these transactions. The 500 Hawk missiles that were supposed to be sent to Iran, that money was already paid for. Gabonifar already took his cut of it, even Mm -hmm. though they only delivered the 18 or 19 or whatever, 18 I think it was. So as this money is coming back through, um, Gabonifar goes, why do we need to keep dealing with Israel? He goes, I understand that you guys are trying to do this under the cover of darkness. If it's found out anyway, it's probably going to look like bad. that's like, that's what's going to make people okay with it. Be like, yeah. well, they were selling him to Israel. I mean, so technically, and that was their whole thing to try to get out of it. If they got caught, yeah. they were just going to lean on the fact that we never sold weapons to Iran. What Israel does with those weapons that they buy from us, 
that's their business, and maybe we'll be like, hey, Israel, don't don't sell those to Iran anymore. Well, and uh, we're still, as this is happening, supposedly hostages are needing to be released, mm-hmm. so it, it just seems fishy. And Gabani Far can figure at this point, he's like, if I can cut out Israel, I can cut out their cut. Well, and, and what they're making, so then I can start making that too. That's exactly what he did, and he told North, he goes, "Why don't you guys just sell directly to the or to the Iranian government, like the the more wing that was willing to the talk same way to that you? they're selling to Israel? Yeah. Why don't you just make Israel Iran and sell directly to them? If they can't find out about Israel, they probably shouldn't be able to find out about Iran. Yeah. So let's do it. You guys goes, can find another way to get into the country. Well, Come on, he goes." You guys are sending over all these weapons. They keep raising the price. So clearly they need these. You guys mark your shit up, and then you send all of your markup or part of your markup down to the Contras. The Contras will then be supplied by the money that you're getting from Mm -hmm. Iran, but it'll only be the markup. So you'll be getting all the money back to be able to put it away or to keep resupplying, but all the money that you've marked up can then go down to the Contras and fund them. So um, Oliver North... (laughs) <laughs> he, what was it? He marked up the missile sales that they're going to start sending over by another $15 million. And on top of that, Gabonifar marked his shit up 40%. So Gabonifar is like, you're going to mark your shit up? Okay, you do that. I'm going to put a markup on your markup so I can make more money out of this there, deal and too. And that's the thing is you're like, well, how are they still affording all this? It, it's the Middle East. It is literally the like largest supply of oil. It's, it's why there's so much money. money there. It's why... All of the fucking sheiks and all those people have so much fucking money. It's oil money. They don't care. They just want the fucking weapons. At some point, too, way before this that we forgot to mention, um, Robert McFarlane, McFarlane, whatever his name is, um, he realizes that what they're doing needs presidential approval for what the NS, the, the council is doing. National Security Council. Yeah. So. Okay. He oh, goes, I, sorry. To go back a little further. I, I forgot to mention the thing, the Boland Amendment, how it uh, prevented any agencies when, and we're in 85 now, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's, who finds out about the money going? They found out about a little bit of money and that's why they do the second Boland Amendment. Uh, because they still saw the amount of money that was still flowing into the contract. Correct. And so the, how they explain that, that they were able to get past the first Boland Amendment without actually violating the amendment is they said, well, the National Security Council isn't an agency. And so Council. no agency was providing money. It was the National Security Council. It was this separate. And they were like, bullshit. <laughs> you know that that was included in what we meant. And they even did a, um, a hearing or something on it. They're like, it was implied beyond a reasonable yeah. doubt. We didn't it, think it you were this dumb. Any, any operational entity within the government shouldn't be doing this. So then they craft the second Bullen Amendment to basically shore up any yeah. fucking like well in in the first one no no holes in the dike so then they're point. like hey we told you three years ago quit fucking giving money to the contras and so the second bullet amendment passes so that's i think where it was also- the next year they were consecutive years it was 82 and 83 that the bullet amendments were oh passed. was it really yeah okay so it was they within a year and there's an interview of reagan talking about the second bullet amendment that mm-hmm. they just put in and he does that still letters like <laughs> We actually weren't. I don't know how that money was getting there. It's well, like, yes, you fucking do. Well. <sighs> Motherfucker. So so McFarland uh, knows that in order for them to keep processing these weapons to Israel. Especially if they're going to have to start selling them to Iran. Yeah. They, and, and that shit's going to possibly be found out. 
so there's a, a handwritten, I don't know if it's a memo or whatever it would be from the president authorizing this to happen. That gets filed away. That comes in pretty crazy when we get to the courts. But uh, yeah, so th- that's the plan is Oliver North is going to mark up by about $15 million um, his sales to Iran. Gabonifar is slapping his 40% markup on what he was making anyway. Good for him. That guy's the fucking man. Um, in between February to November of 1986, they sent over 2,000 missiles and miscellaneous weapons to Iran. Or well, to you Iran. just skipped over the whole point of you talking about McFarland. <laughs> so, no, talking about McFarland was just to authorize what was going on. Exactly, but before even the markup on the missiles, and not, not, far, not long before that, back in like December of 85... McFarlane gives his resignation to um, Oh yeah, Reagan. okay. Yeah, I did skip over yeah, that. And then to replace him, um it was the laziest shit I've ever fucking seen. Did you see the the um White House announcement? Poindexter just, was just he had already been working. He did it the same. It wasn't even like, hey, um, just get letting you guys know uh Robert McFarlane is gonna be resigning um from the or as my national security advisor. He literally had him on the right. And he turned to the left and he goes, <laughs> replacing him will be, and Poindexter is standing right there. There was no, like, I'm not saying everyone should get a big send off, but yeah. make it two separate yeah. fucking press conferences. Like give the guy like that's reti- re- retiring from public service. Although he is a fucking morally questionable person. Um, a little, a little pomp. It was and like, he looked over and he's like, which one of you guys am I going to choose you? Come I, over I think here. he, I think he looked and he goes, well, and then in that, well, he made the decision. So this guy, <laughs> What's um, your John, name, son? John Poindexter gets, um, takes McFarland's place as a national security advisor. Now he jumped in with both feet. Yes. He was down to clown this whole entire time. And you would think McFarland would be out at that point. No, no, no. At some point, Reagan also is like, hey, I know you just retired, but I need you for one more mission and sends him back to Tehran for some type of negotiation or something. I can't remember the exact details of that. He went over there with Poindexter, right? That's right. That's what it was. He went over there with Poindexter and also North. And then after that, he stepped away from it. So that was where the markup happened. That was where they told them their new price. There you go. Um, Then, like I say, look at that. It It all just came together. Ties right there. February to November in 86, over 2,000 missiles and miscellaneous weapons were sent to Iran. That is so many missiles and so much shit that they're doing over there. That's the thing, too. You just say 2,000 missiles. You're like, that's a lot of missiles. When you also think of all the miscellaneous weapons and all that, okay, rifles, mortars, uh, tons of ammunition, grenades, all that kind of stuff. To fight a war. Exactly. So before we go next, I think it's time for a bathroom break. Okay. All right. Pause in class. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high POD. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically HI. All right, and back to our show. All right, Bathroom so. Bathroom break's over. Everybody back. Okay, so now we're at November 1986. And this is where the shit starts hitting the fan in Iran. And. Right around the same time. It's weird how all this stuff happened very close to each other a world away. Oh, yeah. It, when it when it collapses, <laughs> the deck, it's like a house of cards, man. Yeah. It, it all comes down very quickly. So there's a, um, I don't know what you would, it's not a newspaper, or is it? Because it, it was like a, a publication. It was like a magazine. Okay. So it was called Al-Shara, and it was in Iran, and it was run by. Uh, 
It wasn't in El- or in Iran. I believe it was in Lebanon. It was because he didn't like Iranians. Yeah, that's right. So it was a Lebanese um, publication, and it, is that his name? Uh, that was the guy that was a part of the um, Ayatollahs. Okay, people. I can't remember the name of the owner of Al Shira. I probably should have, but anyway. So he is approached by two um, members of I we're guessing probably like either someone high up or someone that has information within the Iranian government. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Hey, guess what we know? And the guy's like, what? He's like, we found out or we know that the United States is selling us weapons. He's like, okay. He's like, you want to run a story about it? Yeah. Maybe this will sound good. Um, the guy who took the fall for, the Iranian side of it, his name is Menadini Hashimi, and he was tortured and then killed after he was found out to be the one that leaked his story in Iran. So apparently, maybe it was someone within the Iranian government that was actually maybe like on the trying to do some damage that was like a Shah loyalist or something like that, possibly. Yeah, maybe didn't want to be working with America. Because there's no benefit to him leaking this story. No, no. In fact, it was the opposite because he got killed for it. And and here's the thing, too. Okay, you really think about it. It's a a Lebanese publication. Wasn't it within the same day or a day after that Reagan does a press conference? He's made aware of this I think it so was, quickly. I thought it was, he waited. I thought it was 10 days after this it was close. Ran. I know it was close. I yeah, don't know if it, it was 10. It, it, there was some odd timing, though, to where I think it was 10 days because everybody's like, well, aren't you going to say something about this? And I'm sure he was talking to his publicist like, what the fuck it, do I it, say? Before viral was a thing, Yeah, this thing goes viral as much as it can for a publication coming out of Lebanon. And... I mean, it gets back to the states. Of course, there's also people within the government watching all these publications and for information. Yeah. And Reagan has to basically come on TV and be like, there is no truth to any of this. They're lying to all this kind of shit. And I think he related it. He said that he couldn't elaborate anymore because any information that they provided could potentially be detrimental to their ongoing efforts to release the hostages. Yeah. That was always his fucking go-to. Whenever he was asked about this, he's like, we can't discuss any details about this because it could disclose some of the operations to release the hostages. I mean, it's not the dumbest thing to go with. Like, if you want to try... It's the fucking easy thing when you don't have an answer to the fucking question. It really is. And there was some conspiracy that um, a member of the Joint Chief of Staff may have orchestrated the leak... To with, Iran and they yeah, had them to, or to Ashra. So I don't know. I mean, there wasn't really anything to confirm it. There was never a name placed on it. Well, just when you think <laughs> the stuff can't start coming down any quicker, let's shoot back over to uh, Nicaragua and the Sandinistas shoot down a plane. And so apparently they were talking about like what happened. So it was a cargo plane. It was one of the ones supplying the contrast. Resupply plane had guns in it, had everything. Broad daylight. It was flying at 2,500 feet. And these are slow planes. Yeah. They said, and they would, the Sandinistas would have basically like patrols or like lookouts and everything armed with rocket launchers. And they, they shot this shit down. Well, that's not one of ours. What is that? Oh yeah. That's definitely not one of ours. And out of the wreckage, or after they search wreckage, there's no survivors. They, two days later, or a day later, they find Eugene Hassenfuss sleeping in a hammock made from a parachute that he had deployed after jumping out of this plane. 
he was the only one that had a parachute because he had borrowed it from his brother, who was a skydiver. <laughs> and his family didn't know he was down running guns and dropping guns out. I think he had said he had gotten a job doing transport for something. Always. Yeah, It's uh, technically he was doing transport. Do you think they were giving him shit, being like, oh, look at Eugene with his parachute? <laughs> And as he jumps out, he's like, who's laughing now, fuckers? You dipshits work for the CIA and you didn't bring parachutes? The CIA couldn't afford to give you two parachutes? Come on. So on TV, the Sandinistas walk Eugene out of the jungle on a leash, like just something tied to his <laughs> hands or his neck to like lead him. And Eugene, with nothing to lose, he's got no stake in all this. Eugene explains everything he can. Yeah, he spilled his guts. Not only... Does that happen? The Sandinistas find the wreckage and they find two people who are confirmed to work for the CIA. These guys all had their fucking IDs and wallets on them. And they worked for, they all had like business cards or something that pointed to a certain cargo company, but it was a cargo company that was very like easy to find out that it was a front for the CIA based out of like Miami. So not only do they have all this, they have Eugene that's explaining all this. They find their safe house that they were operating out of. And upon raiding the safe house and going through the phone records, guess who they have a lot of calls to? Good old Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North's office. So all of a sudden, you now have everything in Iran coming to light about this arms deal that wasn't supposed to be happening. And now you have proof that the CIA is running cargo shipments of arms down to the Contras in Nicaragua. And shit just starts popping off in D.C. and Congress. In a matter of days. Like, this wasn't, like, months apart. This was days that these things were happening. And you gotta think, after, for as long as they've been running it, everything kind of going right and going well, that for this all to fall apart as fast as it did, it's like, how how can this happen? Like, this had to have been fate that all this shit just went wrong at the same time. So... This basically kicks off a congressional investigation, and there's um, through through the investigation, they basically are you know coming into certain offices looking for things like that. At one point, they come into Oliver Norris' office. So at this point, there's no connection. They don't know there's any connection between the deal going on in Iran and basically the deal with the Contras. They don't know that they're connected by any means. They just think they're two separate fucking no-nos. A couple agents are going through or are searching North's office. They walk in, and he's shredding shit. He's, he's destroying stuff. At this point, since they knew the reports came out, since the Al-Sharah report came out, they had been destroying documents. Oh, yeah. So they come in. Oliver North and his secretary, I forgot what her name was. I think it was Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall, that's right. At one point, she shoves documents down the back of her pants and the back of her blouse. And in her boots. Mm-hmm. Anywhere that she could fit documents. To try to sneak them out. So Thank he's shredding documents. The two investigators come in. He's like, hey, guys, just over here shredding documents. They're like, okay, we're just going to have a look around. They go through, I think, in a separate room, not the one he's in. They're going through a bunch of documents. Early on in the process of the whole Iran-Contra funding, funneling money, um, North needed a little bit of CIA help really early on for transport and everything. And so they were able to find like one memo and documents that basically linked 
and they had because they the CIA has to document everything as a government agency. The memo basically linked and talked about the Iran deal, and then underneath that, it made a line about diverting funds to support the uh, Nicaraguan Contras. And the guys looked at it, and they knew what they had. They couldn't let on though, because if they let on that they found something, then he's just going to go try to destroy. It. And they can't remove the document because then he's going to know that it's gone. Yeah. So they put the document well, back. Well, they probably didn't have a search warrant it. for it. I would assume they made a fucking copy or took a picture of the shit because you couldn't risk that. And walk out after leaving the document where it is. That day they go to a meeting and I can't remember. I think it was with Poindexter, the two investigators, and one more guy. I can't remember what his name was. But he, they're having dinner and he's like, we found something big. And basically tells him, he's like, we've connected the going on uh, with the Contras and their funding to the Iran arms deal. What do you think Poindexter was at that point? You think he's like, what? No way. These two things are connected. Or do you think he's like, Hey, I got to put some shit on you guys. He's like, what did you find? <laughs> yeah. Like what do you try to come clean at that point? Or where, you- where did you find it exactly? <laughs> and just for safekeeping, I'd like you to pass me all records, pictures, anything like that. You guys might have said document. I'm the NSA guy for the president. Like, you need to give me all this stuff. This is totally national security. I'm the most national secure. Yep. Yeah. Person. person <laughs> Nationally securest person on the planet. So, basically, the when was it that it was the twenty? No. no sorry. So November twenty fifth. That's right. The funding plan was revealed to the public by the attorney general, who was Edwin Meese at the time, or Edwin Meese at the time. And, of course, the same day that that hits, all of a sudden Reagan's like, hey, 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 this could be serious. We need to uh, bring... What do you mean the people that I wanted funded the whole time were still receiving funding? You mean that they their continued success in the rebellion or their ability to stay in there was not just coincidence? There they was still money? Have, they must have really been the founding fathers yeah. for them to continue to do this. Uh, so Reagan enacts something called the Tower Commission. And, excuse me. Headed up by a guy with the last name Tower as they, the commissions. Yeah, Senator had. John Tower uh, was number one. The other guy, and this was all, like, this happened the 25th that he called for the Tower Commission. Probably took Thanksgiving off. Don't know when it was that year. Uh, December 1st rolls around. Senator John Tower, former Secretary of State Ed Muskie, great last name. Uh, and the former NSA advisor Brent Showcroft were all put into this tower commission to look into the inquiry and, or to start the inquiry. And, and at this time, it now becomes the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. Everything connects. Um, this whole tower commission was kind of bullshit because basically what they were hoping to do was to figure out how to shift the blame from Reagan Yeah, they were trying – the whole point was not to find wrongdoing. The whole point was to try to – distance and sever any ties of wrongdoing to Reagan's knowledge. Yeah. So like a good president would, uh, December 2nd, the very next day, Reagan appears before the tower commission and he ends up saying in the beginning that he did authorize the arms deal before coming back to the line of questioning later on. And he had magically no recollection of signing any arms deal. Which, it's very odd how you can admit to doing something and then in the exact same testimony be like, I really don't remember doing it. At the, I'm I'm not sure the order in which it happened, but he also did when he was talking about this, he did, um, 
what do they call it state of the, not a state of the union, but it's uh, what do you the, call it when the president just has an address, uh, presidential address? Yeah, whatever. That was after the the tower. Yeah, yeah. What I'm getting at is it's the same type of thing. He he takes blame but doesn't take blame, and his whole his whole thing in defense during this is, well, I knew about the deals, but I didn't know that the deals were being intended to as a weapons for hostages type thing. And you're like, motherfucker, then what was the fucking weapons for? And not to mention... If you, you weren't even doing it for the hostages, yeah. then you were just fucking doing the one thing that you told everybody else not to do and just directly fucking selling weapons to them. You were also the guy that coined the term, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yes. And you are if sendering... you ever heard that, that's been <laughs> yeah. a thing since then. <laughs> United States does not negotiate. How many fucking movies has that been in? I, it's just, it's everywhere. And the fact that the You're one, not even negotiating, motherfucker. You're literally giving them weapons. Sign, sealed, delivered. There's no negotiation. Negotiations happened a long time ago. You've We've jumped negotiations mm-hmm. quite a bit. So 200-page tower report gets issued February 22nd, or 26th in 1987. Probably should have so released it. a year, a little less than a year. Yeah, probably should have released it in uh, February 29th because that's basically what this was. Um, it basically said that Reagan's for Reagan's part, his biggest issue was that he should have listened more to the advisors around him. Is this what so, they said he was out to lunch? He shift, yeah, he's shifting all the blame, or the Tower Commission is shifting all the blame to everybody else around him that Reagan should have heard more, listened more, and asked more questions so he could have shut it down. They basically said that if uh, they're like, he's not guilty of wrongdoing because it's not le- illegal to be stupid. You're like, these are all. And here's the thing, man. Should be. These aren't even like this isn't even at a time when we're like who or um, J. Edgar with the FBI. Yeah. Where he's in another agency. There's not a lot of oversight. The president doesn't have direct. These are people within his fucking National Security Council. The guy's right fucking under him doing this. And so when they said that, yeah, they're like, um, he Reagan was out to lunch, basically saying that he didn't know what the fuck was going on, but it's not illegal to be ignorant. Yeah, so Tower Commission hits its point. Congress in 1987, I believe may have been held in power by the Democrats. I'm not positive if it was. At least the House would be probably... At the end of his term, it was, because they okay. said that the election in 86 for Congress was the first time in his six years as president that he did not have a House that um, was Republican held. Okay. So anytime after 86, it was a Democrat both held Senate and House representatives. So 1987, um, after the tower comes out, congressional investigation gets started, Uh, The congressional investigation was a little bit worse, and this, I don't think this was the first time that this term was ever used um, in politics because it just feels like it's used every time somebody fucks up and doesn't want to get caught. They called it a partisan witch hunt. Um, They said that this was the Democrats trying to ruin Reagan on his way out after such an illustrious, very, uh, he was, was he, he wasn't two terms, was he? Yeah. He was two terms, yep. okay. It was uh, his... Bush afterwards, it wasn't. Yeah. So it, we haven't even gotten to that guy yet. Holy shit. Um, so oh, we got time, baby. Yeah, they said that the Democrats were just trying to basically kick dirt on Reagan's name. Uh, their findings were if he didn't know, he should have known. So, I mean, that's 
This isn't even seven degrees of fucking Kevin Bacon. You don't have separation. Yeah. It's one degree to you. It's the guy right below you that's tasked with giving you all the national security information. When did he come out and throw people under the bus? Um, That was right after this. He does a, basically, he comes on, does another address. And this is where he says, uh, I believe his exact wording, and maybe not verbatim, um, if I'm guilty of anything, which I definitely am, I'm guilty of caring too much about the people on the ground. Because that was his deal, was he wanted to take, like he wanted to take the blame. He wanted to take the blame in, in sort a, in of an the altruistic op- manner. Well, in the optics of I was doing everything I could to save these people in Iran. The hostages. Yeah. yeah. I, and so he basically frames his way out of like, this guy fucked up. This guy fucked up. This guy he fucked names up. Fucking names. Yeah. It's not like we're investigating. He's like, and this guy fucked up. It was Weinberger. Um, it was also McFarlane, Elliot Abrams, Alan, Fires. Fires and... Claire George, I believe. Oh, and then Oliver North. Yeah, well, and this is where things get real interesting, because 1989, Oliver North's trial comes up after everything that happened. Um, and this this is where he hits with the lieutenant colonel. Yes. And talks about how he basically, he spills the beans on everything. Okay, so leading up to this, I'm, I'm going to set the stage, yeah. which is going to explain some shit that I'm not happy about. <laughs> During the investigation, when all this is going down, there's a certain number of these people that um, Reagan names that are granted immunity in in um, exchange for their testimony. Fawn was one of them. Fawn was one of them. North was one of them. And then uh, um, he was. He was granted immunity in anything, I think, pertaining to the president because he still goes on trial and he still was convicted. He does, but he was granted a level of immunity. And then I'm trying to remember who else. So Secord was also there, and he um, chose to testify without an immunity deal. He didn't. A bunch of people took the fifth, yeah. pled the fifth on this, so they didn't have to do anything. And then he actually, him and McFarland agreed to testify without an immunity deal. Secord wanted to go first, and the reason that he wanted to go first is he wanted to be able to tell everything and set the narrative because if he tried to then come in after two people had already gone oh, yeah, and contradicted their story, but they had the same story. Then it made him look like yeah. a liar and his story, not correct. And he had a lot of information. You always want to be first in a situation. Yes, like you, you want to be want the to first one off the story the and let everyone else contradict you because it looks bad on them. So he goes first. I, I, I didn't watch the fucking hearing, so I'm not going to say I know what C court admitted to, but I'm sure he provided, I'm pretty sure he provided quite a bit of information. And then at some point McFarlane went Prior to McFarlane going, he tried to, a, a few weeks before, something like that, or a month before, he took a overdose of Valium. Valium that he had been prescribed due to all the stress and shit. And they came out and said that he had just taken a little too much because of all the his back spasms <laughs> or something like that. He took like 11. Yeah, I know. How was 11 a little too much of anything? Track, man. It could be little tiny things stuck together. I don't know. Um so, but he ends up getting to like they save him, go to the hospital, and he survived. So he um, the saddest shit, and I don't even know if it's true, but I guess he wrote like a, a goodbye letter, set it on top of a stack of all the pertinent information that they were going to need to find to really wrap this case up. Like I say, I don't know how true this is. He sent multiple. He had multiple letters sent. Yeah, but he he pops the volume. Um, he's doing them one by one, essentially, and I don't know if this came from him or this was just sort of a dramatization. But he's drinking these Valium 
or he's drinking a glass of red wine and swallowing these Valium with every swig that he takes. Mm-hmm. Then he goes upstairs and lays in his bed next to his wife. And his wife's like, you look stressed out. He's like, it's cool. Everything's going to be fine. And they just go to bed. This is like almost shot for shot. One of the episodes of Last of Us. Really? Where Nick Offerman um, and like the it. guy. It's a great episode. It's a great show. But just, uh, I don't know if that's true, but the fact that this guy was just like, I'm going to end it. And then for them to come out and be like, hey, he just, he overmedicated his bad back. Mm-hmm. Very odd. And crazily enough, when he got up there, he basically just shielded Reagan the entire time and took all the fucking heat right after he tried to kill himself. Which is a crazy move because he was already gone. Like he was, he was out of the, out of everything. Like he, any, he, he had helped set it up. Yeah. But I mean, he wasn't in it and I'm not saying that, you know, makes him better. Or anything he's, like that. he's still liable for what happened. Exactly. It doesn't make him immune to it or anything. Um, but he basically is like, uh, Reagan didn't know anything. I felt it was my duty to go ahead and keep him isolated from this and just handle it myself. I felt I had the authorization to do it and I felt that it was the right thing to do. So basically he's taking all the fucking heat. Then good old Oliver North gets up and instead of basically allowing himself to be questioned, just kind of goes scorched earth on everyone with his answers. He had a story to tell and it didn't matter what question. And he's the one that started out and was talking about how he feels that like the American government has lit down the people of like Nicaragua because we won't support democracy. Basically sets the stage from the beginning that this is like not a culture war, but like a political ideology type war between himself and this panel of senators that are questioning him. And he has different senators coming at him. He's making these like snide remarks. One of them says Lieutenant North. He's like, it's actually Lieutenant Colonel North. And he's given short like answers. At one point, someone asked him about memos that were related to notifying the president of this. And he's like, what happened to those records? He's like, I, I shredded them. Well, and that was his move was he got up and he said that between November 21st and November 25th, he shredded everything. Him and his secretary, Fawn, shredded everything. And not only did they shred everything, they shredded so much shit that it actually jammed the paper shredder. And anything that they couldn't fit in the paper shredder, they put in a burn bag and he burned. And like that was do, that was some, his answer to the question was, I fucked up everything. And then when they asked him about it, he's like, I didn't buy the shredder. Yeah. He's like, the shredder was provided to me by the United States government to use to shred documents. He's like, I didn't choose to go out and provide the means of destroying documents. It was provided to me. I thought I should use it. And not only that, he drops the big bomb of saying that Poindexter, uh, he saw with his own eyes Poindexter take the memo that Reagan signed um, authorizing the arms deal. Mm -hmm. And he watched him burn it. So he immediately fingers Poindexter, whether it was him or not, whether it was North that did it, whether it was Poindexter that did it, wherever this uh, signed piece of paper that Reagan signed to authorize everything. He says specifically that document. And then he says, I watched Poindexter burn it. And here's the thing too, is like, I don't know if he's just really good at what he was doing, but first of all, he's making himself, no one likes him at the, well, actually a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of people thought he was like fucking GI Joe and like the ultimate Patriot because he was doing this stuff because he thought it would strengthen America and protect America. And it's like, So your line of rationale... He's like the military pillow guy. Exactly. So your rationale is that by providing weapons to Iran... He's fucking Flynn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Just the next generation. He showed up in his greens and everything to... Just like uh, Flynn did. 
But so his rationale was he sold weapons to Iran so he could have money to fight communism in Nicaragua. And it's like, I, I don't know how your mind makes those leaps that that's like protecting yeah. all of our interests or anything. And at the same time, so you're, he's turning people against him. And at the same time, he's providing information that incriminates Reagan to where it's like so a muddled much. mess of information. You're like, I don't agree with this, but how can I ignore that? But is that really true? Or is he just trying to cause so much chaos? <laughs> and, and the whole thing too, this is just for, to get information. Like he had a level of immunity, which probably made him feel emboldened and being able to go in and kind of act like that. Well, I also think that there were some um, backroom deals going on because after just the incredible amounts of testimony that were given during all these trials, um, Weinberger convicted, McFarland convicted, Elliot Abrams convicted, Alan Fires convicted, Claire George convicted, um, Oliver North convicted. I don't remember who else it was. I think that may have been pretty close to all the government. There's like 12 people into 12 to 15 yeah. in total. Um, they were all then pardoned. Well, actually, Oliver North and I believe it was Poindexter. Yes. Oliver North and Poindexter didn't need um, a pardon because they were actually, their convictions were overturned based on, I think it was the Fifth Amendment that they decided was violated by the courts. And so Oliver North was just how, let how, go. What do you mean? They pled the fifth and they still got questioned? I, I don't know if it was that or maybe they incriminated themselves during testimony or something like okay. that that they couldn't do. So Oliver North gets his shit completely overturned. Poindexter takes his all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says that they're not going to overturn the overturning of his conviction. Mm -hmm. So he's just let off. All these other guys were all pardoned by the very next president that somehow came into power George Herbert Walker Bush, who was then the vice president. Mm -hmm. So all these guys getting up and spilling the beans. I don't know if it was maybe Bush being like, hey, I don't give a shit about Reagan. I need to make me look good. Mm -hmm. But you guys pin it all on him. Don't ever mention my name in any of this shit. I will pardon you guys when I become president. All of a sudden, everything is good again. You guys are all safe. Say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, to, and if you're going to say that, that Reagan didn't know about this, you have to understand that the vice president, if your point is, like we believe, Reagan was aware of what oh, was going on, Yes. then it, the, the logical assumption is that his vice president is also aware of what's going on. But the fact that this is just another example of there not being repercussions, it's, it's a dog and pony show for like these hearings and these people admitting to this wrongdoing and you're like they get convicted and you're like yes and then you never hear anything because guess what ever never comes out and it it never comes out that there was pardons because yeah. they're done one at a time they're done quietly and then you and then you think that there's repercussions for something you think the punishment was doled out and then you're just like wait what do you mean this guy never served time well i think i don't remember if it was weinberger or mcfarland that he did it but he um pardoned him before he even got sentenced like he just immediately, like he was found guilty. He's pardon. like, okay, pardon. pardon. Don't don't even need to figure just out like what you were going to say. He's like, pardon. Yeah. So all of this fuckery that happened in the government, there's only one person that actually serves time. There's the the Iran Iranian dude that got killed. A guy named Thomas Klein served 16 months, and it was for like just petty shit. So all this did Seaboard. Uh, I, well, I don't think he was a part of the military or like the government anymore. No, he wasn't. But what I'm wondering is, did he serve? Time? Um, I'm sure his immunity probably shielded him from a lot of shit. He didn't have immunity. I thought he did. No, he chose to testify first without immunity. Same as McFarland. McFarland uh -huh. chose to testify without immunity. 
I I didn't look to see what happened to him. I I'm, would imagine with all the information that maybe he still had but withheld and could cause issues. Yeah. I could write a fucking tell-all book, baby, you know. Yeah. He they're like, "Listen, keep your mouth shut and we'll pardon you." Cuz I in the documentary that I watched, he you have these guys like you don't see McFarland, but McFarland is actually like a talking head, but you just hear him narrating uh, okay. before he died like in 2019. I think is when Pretty McFarland recently. actually died. But you actually do get to hear Seaboard talking, and he's so fucking nonchalant and casual about it. Like, no, he has no remorse or anything like that for his part in it, because the way that he also described it, he was like, I was doing what I was told to do. I was hired for a job, and I was doing the job that I was told to do. So This, it lends so perfectly into um, something that we kind of skipped over. And it's something that I plan on doing a little, maybe like a learning episode on eventually. But I really can't blame him for what he did because he, like you say, he he had a certain set of skills. He did that job to the nth degree. He didn't have any, I mean, there is like needing to be a good person and all that kind of That's stuff to stop you. I'm, I'm not yeah. talking about the, the right or wrong against America for this or that. I'm just saying from a moral standpoint oh, yeah. that like to not have any contrition, being a weapons dealer, knowing what you're doing and being able to be so casual. It's like, it's like I'm selling used cars, man. But like what you're selling is, you know, for a fact that everything you're selling is most likely going to lead to the death of someone else. You're just, you're transporting people killers. Yeah. It's not even so much him not showing remorse about breaking the law. It's him just being so casual and so fine about like, yeah, I used to do this. I used to sell weapons and people would die and all that stuff. He's like, la la la. Well, and that's where I get to, um, I brought him up a couple times before Rick Ross, not, not the rapper. That's actually where Rick Ross got his name and there was a legal battle over it. Freeway we'll get, Rick Ross, right? Yeah. Well, freeway Rick Ross. Yeah. We'll get into that. But, um, freeway Rick Ross was a just a, a regular dude in South Central LA. Um, he was a, a low time or a, a small time drug dealer. Um, ends up getting connected with a guy whose name is Danilo Blandone, and Danilo Blandone was a Nicaraguan um, sympathizer with Contra, and he was a cocaine distributor. Was he Nicaraguan? Yeah. Okay. And Blandone was distributing cocaine to help the Contra forces with the money that he was getting back. Now, I, the CIA, uh, the government will always look at this. I fucking, I hate talking about this. Cause when I say shit like that mm -hmm. and I preface it, I'm like, you sound crazy when you say this, but it's, it's just, We've it covered really too much be. shit regarding the CIA on this yeah. to think that anything you're going to say is crazy. This whole thing. Come on. Okay. Just say what you're going to say. So, um, Blandone was shipping cocaine through Central America, up into Mexico, and then it was getting to America. Uh, Rick Ross ends up getting tied up with Blandone. Uh, just a very interesting guy to listen to an interview with. He, he says that he was hooked up with uh, El Padron. He did some business with Colombia, with the, the cartels down there, the Cali cartel and all that. He said the main distributor that he was getting from was Danilo Blandone. Danilo Blandone was bringing these shipments of cocaine up from Nicaragua, and it was getting across the border in such large amounts that there's no way that he couldn't have like this was a CIA protection racket to get this cocaine there. Yeah, he was selling at, at the very most, not doing anything. Yeah, they were they were either giving a blind eye at mm -hmm. the least, or they were shielding him and getting hey, across here. the border at the most. Yeah, just yeah. they it was a, a 
just a caravan basically getting them up there. Rick Ross was making so much money. His goal every single day was that he was going to be selling $200,000 worth of cocaine a day. That was his plan. And give or take, you know, who you want to blame for it. Um, the cocaine that he was getting was then flooding the streets of South Central LA, but he was sending it all across the country. This was kind of like a blow George Young mm-hmm. type deal where he was, he was making the bulk of his money by sending it east where and you couldn't was, get this And this was stuff. in the prime Nancy Reagan war on drugs, just say no, the all the fucking PSAs, all that shit. Yeah. Okay, you need to now explain to me that because... <laughs> Instead of looking into it, I wanted you to tell me <laughs> okay. about Nancy me, Reagan, the throat goat. Let me let me tie up Ross real quick. Okay. So Rick Ross was buying this. He said he didn't want to deal with credit because he knew how South American drug dealers or Central American drug dealers worked. Okay. He knew how all that happened. He was buying cash every single day. He was getting drops from Blandone. And they talk about this perfectly in Snowfall, just how it all happened and who he was dealing with. But they were dropping enough off a day that his profit margin was supposed to be $200,000. All of Rick Ross's money that he's buying this cash up front is then being transported back down to Nicaragua. And that's helping to run the Contra. Contras. Yeah. So the CIA is a part of this as not only probably knowing what the fuck is going mm-hmm. on with the Swiss bank account and all the Norse deal and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But then they're also turning a blind eye to the funding that they're getting from one of the largest cocaine distributors in the United States. The place where, like you were just talking about, Nancy Reagan is coming out with this Just Say No campaign and doing all this stuff. The president and the president's wife are pushing back so hard against drugs. Well, I don't know if they did know about it because it's kind of hard. Like. The, the rest of the governmental stuff I get, mm-hmm. this might not have fallen into his it's, purview. It's what do you hate more. If you, had to, if you had to guess what Ronald Reagan hates more, would you say drugs or communism? Probably communism. Okay. For so sure. Then it, maybe it's not so far-fetched. I'm not saying he knew about it, but here's the thing. Yeah. When he said, keep the contrast whole, body and soul, I don't know if he said whole and he rhymed it. But body, that's soul, right. body and soul. He said body, body and whole and soul. Um, <laughs> at that point, when he said that, I think he just kind of checked out and was like, "As long as they're still fighting, and as long as they have a chance to to fight communism, I don't give a shit." Yeah, it very well could have. Yeah. And I mentioned this been. to you the other good example of how Ronald Reagan was not on the ball. Usually when you're going to meet foreign dignitaries, um, when he went to go meet Mikhail Gorbachev, yeah. prior to them meeting, instead of the normal like dossiers, binders about all of that, I mean, they will hand them and it'll tell them everything about Mikhail Gorbachev. They had to make it into like a movie and a documentary. So he would watch it. And be well, he was a movie guy. He was I, an actor. I, I get that, but he also read scripts and had to do that shit. <laughs> that was what I was about to say. He was a script reader too, so. He had to have his words read to him and then read them back. <laughs> I'm just saying that like everyone, you know, Reagan has this weird spot on a pedestal. This is why though, because they had to try to do damage control on this shit and that's why he looked so good. He did, He wasn't all bad. He, he ended, did some decent this, shit. What's but, fucking crazy is this happened right toward the end of his presidency and he still ended his presidency with like one of the highest approval ratings since fucking FDR. Yeah, his approval rating when it first hit though dropped to, I want to say it was like 42, 46, something like that. So not very great. But then his apologies and his half-ass taking the blame for stuff 
endeared him to the public mm-hmm. and he left pretty happy and that's why you still see i this is just a, a weird side rant that i'm not going to go into but if you own a t-shirt or anything like that that has any sort of presidential thing about it like whether it's an obama chain shirt whether it's a uh-huh. reagan bush shirt anything like that you care too much and you need to take a step back yeah like that's we're just too far these people it's, are it's, civil it's servants fan, it's fandom it yeah, shouldn't be yes, a fandom it yes. shouldn't be love your sports teams mm-hmm. there's so many of them we can choose from everything but like when liking something either makes you go against 50% of other people, just be like, hey, like, it, it's the thing that's so easy. Just let's just figure this shit out. Let's all compromise and everything and just have that 60 or 70%. All of us meet in the middle and figure out something instead of letting all the fucking craziness on the outside be like, no, do this, do that. Let, yeah, let's not forget uh, with sports fandom, we don't vote for who Are you. Huh? Oh, yeah. With sports fandom, we don't vote for who we pl- or who Correct. plays for our team. We vote for these motherfuckers to have this position. Yes, that's enough of your support to vote mm-hmm. for them. We don't need to wear shirts and, then, and, and bumper guess what? stickers. And- Be a fucking adult. And if your person fucks up, say I don't agree with what they're doing. I don't like that. You can say that and not seem wrong because guess yeah. what? You can go. You can love TGI Fridays, and you can go to TGI fucking Fridays. And if the potato skins aren't as good as they usually are, you can say, God damn it, TGI Fridays. Well, Bad night. You had an off night, TGI Fridays. Yeah, I I was man enough to admit that my lifelong fandom of the Packers just had had reached its point. And that's why I'm a Bills fan now, because I I gave them all that I had, and I realized that they were just going to keep fucking me, so I walked away from the table. And that's okay to do. It's it's okay to do in politics. It's okay to do in fucking anything, really. I mean, if you think about it, any time in life, if somebody's doing something that you just don't agree with, it's okay to walk away from the table. Okay. But, uh, yeah, just along that that same line, um, all this stuff is coming in to the country as far as drugs and everything that the crack epidemic is going crazy. Nancy Reagan comes out with just say no. One of her big pushes in the beginning was to try to get, um, athletes on board as spokespersons mm-hmm. or spokespeople for just say no. Oh, who did I, I said Clint Eastwood was the one I, I saw, right? <laughs> yeah. I showed, and he's you got like, Clint. He holds up a tiny valley and goes, this here's crack cocaine, the most dangerous drug in existence. It's like, it's taken over our streets and our children. Uh, it, where, where's Clint Eastwood on the bulk of the issue that's going on is the black community in these lower income neighborhoods where the crack epidemic is fueled. Where is Clint, Clint, wow, I almost said Clint Eastwood. Where's Clint Eastwood where on this? Where is Clint Eastwood? <laughs> like, Black people aren't identifying with Clint Eastwood. And the same thing Reagan did when she brought in the NHL players and Wayne Gretzky. Oh, hold on a second. You're you're telling me that the whole point of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign was targeted, was wrongly targeted at away white from people? black people? Yeah. Yeah, come on, man. Weird how that happened. Yeah, weird that it wasn't fucking uh, Michael Jordan or fucking Wilt Chamberlain at the time or someone like that. Yeah. Or they didn't have a plethora Kareem, of different ones. Uh, Kareem being in L.A., could have done so much good for that whole entire thing, but Kareem Luau Cinder was not a part of it. Okay, we're getting too far to the crack episode. Yeah, I uh, but this episode. just as far as that goes, like you have the presidency coming out and saying no while they're maybe knowing, maybe not knowing. I'm sure asked where maybe this is all coming from and mm-hmm. found out. Like they're pulling this campaign out. Well, is Casey, that like Casey, altruistic? The like, head of the FBI, I can't remember his first name, but uh, is John Casey. Uh, Casey, Casey is yeah. his last name. He was like. They're with Reagan and also had a very close relationship with Reagan. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's just, it's fucking filthy. Okay, all over. so yeah, just to get to Nancy Reagan Okay, real hold quick. on. 
before we get to Nancy Reagan, because it's such a deviation yeah. from the topic, and maybe everyone doesn't want to listen about Nancy Reagan. I'm going like, to do less Jones. than five on, on I, Nancy. I understand. What I'm going to do is we're going to say this. We're going to go ahead and let class out early for people that don't want to <laughs> hang around for extra credit. So this is going to be, going forward, our discussion of Adam teaching me, because I've heard about this, Nancy Reagan, Nancy Reagan her legendary ability to please a pleasure, pleasure a phallus. She just, yeah, she, she used to suck the chrome off of a trailer cage. If you're here for Iran Contra only, stop now. We appreciate you listening. Yeah, I just wrap up real quick. I mean, we see different things with Reagan as far as 1994, he was fully diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, there were different interviews that were done with him in congressional hearings in the early nineties. I want to say like 1990 where a lot of this stuff was brought up and you could kind of tell with the way that he was answering questions and kind of like skirting subjects. He definitely may have been on some sort of a mental decline. I'm not saying that he, while he was president, I, but I'm not also not, not saying I, I'm on her side on this. And what I'll say is this. Think of like, and I know that 90, for some people, 94 seems like it's a long fucking ways yeah. back. But if you're thinking about like cognitive impairments and everything, in the 90s, the diagnosis of that, especially for someone like the president, they probably wouldn't put that stamp on him as an official diagnosis no. until they had no other choice. Which means that there was probably a very good chunk of years dating back five yeah. eight, ten years, maybe even into his presidency, where he was suffering the effects, early effects of dementia. Or not dementia, uh Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. And, and I'm not saying that this is what's going on now, but potentially in ten to fifteen years we could be seeing the same thing. Where there may have been some cognitive decline because we keep electing old people to being president. Oh yeah, we can't discuss that right now because that's fucking ridiculous that there's not an age limit. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. You can't drive after a certain point. You shouldn't be in charge. You shouldn't be steering the goddamn country. Yep, exactly. After a certain point too. And it should be well before you're canceled for driving. Okay. Are we are we gonna let some people out? Yeah, I I would just say, um, I, this isn't trying to bash Reagan or anything like this. Any president in this position would have certainly it's fallen not, we don't under. We have to try hard. Yeah. It, we didn't have to look hard into this to be like, this doesn't quite seem like it adds up. Like Reagan seems like he might be a little bit off of his rocker, but he definitely at the same time knew far more than was ever really attributed yes. to him. With same with thing. That, yeah. um, we'll talk about the Bushes eventually in an episode, but. GW was definitely more a part of this and somehow skirted it. We're going to be we'll cover the Iraq yeah. conflict yep. and Desert we'll, Storm. We'll cover all that, all that stuff. But just to kind of put a little bow on it, um, excuse me, anytime we get things from the government, you always have to kind of run some critical thinking on what's going on. Uh, this kind of fell under the lock and key secret of shit that goes on that we don't ever really find out about until something goes wrong like this did and we find out about it. That it would still go on till it naturally just ended had no one ever found out about it. It's yes, not like exactly. these guys were ever like, we're only going to do it for this long, a little bit longer. It's like, no, we're going to do this shit for however long we can. So yeah, it, you can't question anything or you can question everything the government says, but you really have to like put some critical thinking into what's going on to really look at it. This for me is always really not past the sniff test. And I really love it because it's kind of like the intersection of politics and conspiracy that I can really get it's on board with. It's not a conspiracy, with. dude. It happened. I, but there still are like levels to this. There's branches off of it yeah. where you can get, but like, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is the facts themselves make everything pretty clear. Yeah. Pretty cut and dry as to what happened. But yeah, it just something that I feel like 
really doesn't we don't talk about a whole lot because I don't know if the PR campaign to bring them back was great, but this is a pretty fucking big deal for the country and a pretty, pretty big deal for the president to be involved in. And we just sort of let it go. It's because nothing bad happened to us. Yeah. uh, It was beyond our borders. It's very true. No one fucking cares. Yeah. It was, it wasn't bad shit happened to us. We lost a few million dollars. Like I think they said, they said when it came out, they're like, we found during the hearings that uh, roughly <laughs> like ten to f- ten to fifteen million dollars had been diverted. That's what they fucking knew about the money that they never oh, saw yeah. coming from fucking Iran or Israel or whatever. Or Rick Ross or really anybody. We don't exactly. know those total that amount numbers. was. And we, we never will. No. Probably for the better. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, Adam. Tell me about the blur jobs. Uh, yeah. So for everybody that's getting off, uh, thank you for listening. We will catch you again next week. Um, goodbye. Peace. Now for the extra credit portion of this class after dark, Nancy Reagan seems to have had a very promiscuous past that I really tend to enjoy hearing about because it's very funny. And really how this whole thing came to light was, I don't remember if it was like last year during National Women's Month or whatever, but somebody um, higher up, I don't know if it was government or somebody kind of government adjacent, posted this meme that says, be more like Nancy and be less like uh, the chick that banged JFK. Marilyn? Marilyn Monroe, yeah. It was a picture of Marilyn Monroe and it was a picture of Nancy Reagan. It said, Oh, trying to like compare like yeah, the, be va- more like the values Nancy and, and less like, like class. Yeah. And it came out that Nancy Reagan blew like three quarters of Hollywood while she, like before she met Ronald. And I don't know if it stopped after, but we do know that Ronald Reagan obviously was a very big movie star. He was a pretty big deal in California. Nancy Reagan would go to these parties and she is nicknamed the throat goat because she sucked dick so good that she was blowing everybody in Hollywood. And so as soon as this <laughs> set in the mood. As soon as this meme comes music. out, everybody's like, Well, there's no way that this could be real. Like there's no way that this could be happening. Nancy Reagan was a very wholesome woman, just say no to drugs and all this stuff. And I guess it was just something that was never brought up, but this was like a widely known thing in Hollywood that she blew just a ton of different dudes. And the fact that she was able to bag herself so much um, kind of parallel between what's going on in England right now mm-hmm. with the chick that's married to the new king, Camilla. Oh, yeah. When she was like the uh, side chick for, I think it's Prince George or King George. Yeah, when he wasn't he banging her behind Diana's back? Yeah, which is shocking because she is a woman that is just very less attractive than she's got a, she's got strong features yeah she's a she's a sturdy broad mm-hmm. and uh, with them as weird as did you ever see the text thread between king george and camilla charles i think or king charles yeah and camilla no. when he's talking about wishing that he was her tampon and he could just be shoved up her vagina no, and be in there all day it's totally i'm like, finding out so much stuff <laughs> It's like stepbrothers when she's like, yeah, I just wish I could ball you and shove you up my... I could feel your hairs, like it would be ticklish. All that kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. So that was, uh, I guess, like how that all went down with them. But it draws so many parallels to Nancy Reagan. Him and Nancy didn't get together to like later in his life before he was governor or 
he was governor of California, right? Yeah, I think it was right around that time that they started hooking up and getting married. So she married. had a lot of time before him. Yeah. And a lot you, of time to hone her craft. You got to think. Bag herself a governor. <laughs> that mouth, that governor, uh, freaking it, finding mouth. Yeah, dude. There's not a lot of sexual things that could bring is you Nancy to the height. Is Nancy freaking dead? Uh, I hope so. Yeah, I, I don't know. Not that I hope she's dead. I hope that she didn't live to see this get, get out. <laughs> well, I just, but, don't, I just don't want to be talking about someone's Nana if she's still alive. Well, and that's unfortunately a fact that Nana... Nope, 2016. Nana R- does Rest do in peace, things. throat goat. Yeah, R.I.P. throat goat. But she actually got that reputation that, like, if you were going to a party and Nancy Reagan was going to be there, you were going to get some top and it was going to be, like, Grade A primo. Do you think Wikipedia, just curious, has anything related to Nancy Reagan <laughs> on that? About her D-sucking I abilities? Mean, well, yeah, I mean, technically it's, a, you know, a free user-based and everyone participates in it. I mean, if there's enough influence in the White House, you think that mouth was making policy? Uh, well, and the fact that Wikipedia couldn't even go through and, like, check it and take it off because it was, like... Here's the thing, In too. Lower. I'm not sex shaming Nancy Reagan. No, no, I good for her. We I don't think it's fantastic. I think Nancy Reagan able to work her way up through Hollywood by an any means necessary <laughs> roll your sleeves up mentality and then to bag herself the governor after doing that, despite maybe having a reputation yeah. that she was that good at her craft. Ronald had to have known beforehand. And I'm not, here's, here's the thing, too. <laughs> Who's to say that Ronald would have even had that clarity of mind? To get into the White House and be able to run that campaign had Nancy not been there helping take that stress had away. Had he not been night. getting sucked off like he was. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was so out of it all the time. I think we have stumbled upon a possible She sucked him into Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say that's the reason why he was looking all spacey. Like he lost his car. He was always being like, I'm so tired. Why am I always so tired? He's like, where's Nancy? Nancy, where's Nancy? Yeah, that's why I always looked like it because she was sucking him off and he'd go out there and be like I don't really care yeah, what I don't here anymore. He, he was in that post nut clarity <laughs> yeah. and just was ambivalent stuff he's like what are you going to do about the hostages Hosti- oh the hostages we're working hard to get the hostages Same back one. we're doing everything we can I'm thinking of sending Nancy over there to try to get these hostages back <laughs> yeah Nancy could be the diplomat Nancy could have got those hostages back alright well I'm. thank you for teaching me about yeah, that no, really uh, great story it. great and lady if, and if you decide to hang around Thank you. If that wasn't your cup of tea, we're not always going to do that, but it's just fun to add that kind of shit in these episodes. But yep. if I if I know our listeners, I think they enjoy those kinds of facts that maybe they weren't aware of. It's history. It is truly it's history. An, it's a key, pivotal moment in American history when we found out that Nancy Reagan was the greatest at something. She was the throat goat. All right, guys. Well, thank you for staying with us. Um, two more days before your weekend or whenever you're listening to this. Hope you're having a great day, and uh, we'll see you next week. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high that's historically hi all right and if you guys want to send in any feedback suggestions hit us up on those two or you can even do it on gmail it's historically high podcast at gmail.com uh thanks again peace